0: Welcome to Iraq Legacy of War, brought to you by Intelligence Squared, I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In this limited series, we're looking at the legacy of the war in Iraq 20 years after the US-led invasion in March 2003. Join us as we look back at one of the most significant military interventions in modern history and address how its legacy has defined global tensions and foreign policy today. If you missed our previous episodes where we discussed the road to war, the failures and chaos after the invasion, and the rise of ISIS, do go back and listen now. On this episode, the BBC's international editor, Jeremy Bowen, speaks to four-star General David Petraeus about his first-hand military strategies deployed in Iraq, as well as the lasting legacy the war in Iraq has had on global foreign policy, including Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine, and whether the US today is a power in decline.
1: General David Petraeus, a unique military figure, I'd say, because not only was he involved in the invasion, but he was involved too in what happened subsequently. Commanded the multinational force there, 2007, 2008, and was, of course, always associated with the surge, that counterinsurgency strategy that helped stabilize the country. It did help reduce violence, the killing, the massive killing that had been going on in the sectarian civil war. And he was widely praised for that and recognized as one of the most effective military commanders of his generation in the U.S. military. And after that, he was director of the CIA. So General Petraeus, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Good to be back with you. So looking back 20 years, first of all,
2: What were you expecting in the run-up to the war? Well, initially, I was actually deployed in Bosnia when the 9-11 attacks happened. Uh, I spent a year there uh, with the Peacekeeping Force and also chasing war criminals and then actually terrorists in the wake of 9-11. On my way home, uh, I was going to command the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, I was asked to stop in Germany at the headquarters of V-Corps. When I sat with the planners there, I first recognized that the force had been reduced very substantially from the last time I had any kind of activity with that plan. Uh, But then I went on to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, took command of the Great Screaming Eagles, and we had a very intensive period of preparation over the next seven or eight months until we deployed to Kuwait and then prepared for the subsequent invasion uh, in late March of 2003 what we were told to anticipate did not unfold. In fact, it was pretty clear to me within the first two weeks at the least uh, that the assumptions that we'd been given uh, were being invalidated one by one. In fact, before we actually launched the invasion at the final meeting of all of the commanders, I put my hand up and asked for a little bit more detail about what might happen after we got to Baghdad, toppled the regime. And I was told by a retired three-star who was the deputy head of the Organization for Reconstruction Humanitarian Assistance, just get us to Baghdad, Dave. We'll take it from there. Well, a couple of weeks into the war, uh, we took Najaf. The 101st seized it. A tough attack over several days. I remember calling my boss and telling him that I had good news and bad news. The good news is that we owned Najaf. The bad news is that we owned Najaf because all of the Local officials or the police, everyone else had fled, not just the military organizations and the Saddam Fedayeen, the paramilitary that we would defeated, but virtually all the other bureaucrats that we actually needed to run a city of 500,000, the holiest city in Shia Islam. Uh, so it was very clear as early as that, that the expectation that we would topple the regime and the immediate individuals around this murderous, kleptocratic dictator Saddam Hussein and everyone else would stay in place. There'd be some political maneuvering, and there would be a new government put on top. That was not going to come to pass, General. If we can go
1: back through that a little bit and some of the those signs. First of all, you said the force, the numbers were were less than you expected. Do you think it started going wrong because you just simply did not have the combat power in terms of numbers, and also the peacekeeping power after that to to seize the city and impose order.
2: In fact, I was asked in the fall of 2002 by the then Vice Chief of Staff of the Army, General Jack Keene, big mentor of mine, what I thought of the plan. And I said that I feared that we might be too light if they fight and too light if they collapse. We actually dealt with the fighting piece, although there were some difficult moments and some of the, the thunder runs were close run affairs. Uh, But clearly, we didn't have the number of forces on the ground that we would have liked to have had, literally just to impose order and control in the wake of the collapse of every element of governance. So that was certainly a major challenge very early on.
1: Now, I've spent a lot of time in Iraq before and after the invasion, and since, and most recently, a couple of weeks ago, uh, many people have said to me over the years that That first message that entered the minds of Iraqis was that, well, the Americans have arrived, and hang on a minute, they're just watching this chaos unfold, and they can't do anything about it. So immediately, that was a very bad message in terms of American organization resolve, even strength that was being transmitted to Iraqi people. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, no, there's no question that it was unhelpful. Now, keep in mind that in the early battles, again, nausea, for example, we left an entire brigade combat team about... 4,000 soldiers behind. We did not take them further into the fight in Baghdad. So as we started to take these cities in our approach to Baghdad, we were already leaving forces behind. And then by the time Baghdad collapsed, there was barely a full division in Baghdad. Keep in mind that the stunning success of the thunder runs just brought about the collapse and all of the government officials fleeing. So before you could even get sufficient forces into Baghdad, the city was already really quite chaotic. And then the question is, okay, now are we going to start shooting looters or do we want to gradually get a grip on this? And obviously, the choice was not to shoot looters. Many people have seen that
1: those initial days, those initial weeks, as if you like, those those first really serious mistakes and the failure to plan what was going to happen after you defeated the Iraqi armed forces uh, is still cited as one of the things that really started it off on such a bad setting. Do you think that was caused by what? By ignorance, hubris, overconfidence, arrogance?
2: What exactly? Well, there were a number of factors. Uh, one is that I think that there was a lesson taken from Afghanistan that didn't apply to Iraq. uh, And that is that you can get by with a light footprint. And ultimately, of course, that did not work there either. The other factor was just a bad assumption that the local officials would stick around, that they would help us to continue to administer uh, the cities, the provinces, the country. And that obviously uh, proved flawed. Uh, And then finally, just the general planning for the post- Uh, Saddam era was woefully inadequate. And of course, the best validation of that assessment is that the Organization for Reconstruction Humanitarian Assistance was replaced before it really even got established in Baghdad by another pickup team, the Coalition Provisional Authority, uh, which ended up being a bit of a revolving door for individuals that would volunteer to go over there and spend about three months and then go home. My only explanation for why we didn't establish a U.S. embassy immediately and bring in an organization with existing lines of authority and and funding lines and all the structure that would have come with that, and then use existing, say, defense contracting agency, Corps of Engineers, and so forth, uh, is that Secretary Rumsfeld, defense secretary, wanted to control the war rather than handing off to the State Department. Uh, Otherwise, I can find no explanation for why CPA was established. And of course, it then pursued three terribly misguided policies. The first was to fire the Iraqi military without telling them what their future was. And that led, as you'll recall, to week after week after week of increasingly violent demonstrations until finally there was an agreement to provide stipends to them, but damage had been done by then, on a very substantial scale, the second was to conduct debathification without an agreed reconciliation process. In other words, to tell tens of thousands of those that were part of, admittedly Saddam Hussein's party, but you know, once you got below the second or even third level in that in that party structure, you basically had bureaucrats. There were 110 or 120 tenured professors in mostly university, for example, that we were trying to rebuild with the 101st Airborne Division, who were all fired as a result of that. And and if you're fired from working for the government, there is no other job for you. And then the third was really to run the country the way that we did, uh, essentially um, with this U.S. imposed structure. Now, that's a little bit more arguable because one can challenge, okay, what else might you have done? Given that we hadn't planned this out so well, but that also caused enormous friction and challenge. But those first two decisions were literally catastrophic. We had the situation going well, we had it back under control in Mosul, in particular, uh, by mid May or so. Ambassador Bremer arrived a week or so later and undid that with these two strokes of the pen on those first two orders. Essentially, what they did was create hundreds of thousands of Iraqis whose only incentive was to oppose the new Iraq rather than to support it. That is not a sound policy. Yeah, making enemies not friends, not good for counterinsurgency. We had a sign in the walls of my ops centers and every one of these commands that asked a question, will this operation take more bad guys off the street than it creates by its conduct? If the answer to that was no, in other words, you're going to create more enemies by doing what you're contemplating, then you take off the street. You're supposed to go sit under a tree until the thought passes. That's what should have happened with those two policies. So before we fast
1: forward to the surge and your role in all of that and its lasting consequences, uh, what about the legality of the war? There was a lot of controversy at the time that there should have been a much more targeted UN Security Council resolution authorizing military action in the way that there was back in 1991, and that using the existing resolutions, which is in the end what they did, and it was something that certainly Tony Blair was Uh, very anxious to try and get, and he failed to get that resolution. Do you think that that meant that the war, at best, was
2: on some tenuous legal ground? I probably should defer to the legal experts on that. But my sense was at the time, and again, from a two-star position, not the Situation Room in the West Wing of the White House, that the authority to use military force that was passed by the U.S. Congress provided a solid legal foundation for U.S. actions at the very least. Um, And of course, that is still in force today. It's actually now being debated by Congress and likely will finally be ended. But again, that was my sense uh, at the time. Look, when you're a two-star in the chain of command, you have to assume that your commander in chief and the other coalition leaders are going to ensure that there is solid legal foundation for what it is that you're going to execute. We were policy executors, not policymakers. Sure. But 20 years on, uh, looking back from
1: uh, you know all the senior positions you've occupied since then, then you'll know that under the UN Charter, the only legal grounds for making war is either self-defense or the authorization under the appropriate measures of the United Nations Security Council, and neither of those things really applied to the invasion, did they? That's certainly what Kofi Annan said a year or so later.
2: I'll let the international lawyers debate that. I'll leave that to them. Okay. I mean, I, I will also just point out, I think a lot of these reappraisals would have been different, obviously, had substantial weapons of mass destruction been found. Uh, I think that is probably the bigger issue uh, in all of this, frankly. You mean bad intelligence, wrong intelligence? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Although, look, I should note, and we did not make much of this at the time, uh, there were chemical weapons found years later in a bunker, but they were decaying, they were unusable, uh, and so forth. And as you know, there were various weapons found at various times, but nothing such as uh, was uh, predicted would be found. And that's the real issue here. Why do you think the intelligence was so wrong? It's very hard to say because a few years before the invasion, uh, I was the executive assistant of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, essentially his chief of staff. And it was essentially an article of faith that was accepted that Saddam Hussein, that Iraq still had weapons of mass destruction. Uh, Again, the specificity on that was not that great, but it was just, again, an accepted fact. Uh, Clearly, there should have been much more challenge to that in the subsequent years, especially if you're going to plan an invasion. But we actually did strikes during that time when I was working directly for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs on what was termed. Saddam Hussein's WMD production facilities and uh, delivery means.
1: So that's the belief was there. Do you think that intelligence was manipulated by those who wanted to have a war? I'm thinking of the neocons or slightly different category, uh, Rumsfeld and Cheney, who were you might more describe as more nationalistically minded.
2: Yeah, I was not. Party to that. Uh, I looked at some of that later, year, many years later when I was the director. I'm not as convinced of that. In fact, there's some very good recent scholarship out uh, that challenges some of that as well. Uh, at the end of the day, the decision was not made by Cheney or Rumsfeld. It was made by Bush. Now, Iraq,
1: in the chaos that followed the invasion, spiraled down into layers of conflict, and the most serious was... I suppose the sectarian civil war between Shia and Sunni, which resulted in, well, no one really knows, but tens of thousands of deaths. Oh, I De- think hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. Death squads roaming the capital and other places, and just the most awful terror that individuals went through at that particular time. Uh, and it looked uh, as if you might be getting a grip back again when the surge happened. Tell us the thinking behind that, the idea that you would bring in extra forces and they would make a difference. How did that work out?
2: Well, it worked out very well, Uh, but I would point out that the surge that mattered most was not the nearly 30,000 extra US forces. It was the complete change in strategy. It was the surge of ideas as we termed it. We reversed what we'd been doing, which was withdrawing our forces from the neighborhoods, consolidating on big bases handing off security tasks and responsibility to the Iraqi security forces. And we would go right where the fighting between Sunni and Shia was the most intense. We had heat maps as we termed them, slides that would show you where the violence, the sectarian violence was most intense. And that's where we would part our forces. We would then carry out clearance operations to find the Shia militia and the Sunni insurgents and Al Qaeda extremists. We would detain them. Uh, we or kill them uh, if they fought us. Uh, we would then cordon off these areas uh, using enormous cement T-walls to create essentially gated communities, control access and egress. And as the civilians in these areas saw the violence go down, saw that they could resume their lives, they could take their kids to school again, they could go to work, we could repair the roads, we could get the medical facilities opened again, jobs and so forth came back to life they began supporting us very aggressively and pointing out where the bad guys were. And so this is a case where you are spiraling upward, where a security gain leads to more intelligence, which leads to a resumption of local markets, local schools. You know, eventually the soccer league is going again. Eventually the amusement park uh, and the water park were, were reopened. All of this over the course, again, of 19 and a half months or so. Before the surge began in December 2006, with the surge beginning in early February of 2007, there were 53 dead civilian bodies turning up on the streets of Baghdad due to violence every 24 hours. That is
3: out of control. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025,1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com/squared.
1: Just on the surge and the the cooperation with Sunni communities, known as the Awakening of the sour. General, there's one point that uh, one of your great partners in all of this, the US ambassador Ryan Crocker, re-ambassador of the time, has made. And he said that one significant error on this was uh, the issue of salaries that the US paid them. It should have been Maliki, the prime minister, from the start, because that, he argues, Crocker argues, would have perhaps given Maliki a greater stake in it, and also would have been a lot Better, clearer message to the Sunni community that here he was as a Shi'a being prepared to cooperate with them. What do you make of that?
2: Well, uh, Ryan Crocker was a phenomenal diplomatic partner. We we operated like this. We jointly signed a civil military campaign plan. I didn't just sign a military plan, and he signed a diplomatic. We combined the two of those. Very unique in our history, and that was a key to the success. And he's right. If we could have gotten Prime Minister Maliki to pay them from the outset, it would have been fantastic. But frankly, we had to convince Prime Minister Maliki at the outset just to allow us to reconcile them without even paying them. I remember taking him out uh, early on to Ramadi. By the way, I asked him on the way out in the helicopter when the last time he'd been in Ramadi was. He said, oh, not, not very recently. I said, well, how long? He said about 20 years. Yeah, these guys were
1: exiles, weren't they? These these people had spent years in exile.
2: However, he then got into the swing of things. Um, A few months into the reconciliation process, I was taking him up north to the Tigris River Valley into Crete, Saddam's old hometown. And he had a big suitcase with him. And I said, Prime Minister, you know, we're not staying overnight. And he opened it up and it was full of money. So he caught on to the idea of using money Um, but we couldn't get an established payment process from the government. Now, part of this is you also have to have an active parliament, of course, to do that. So again, it would have been a wonderful concept, but it was more difficult. Over time, before actually the ambassador and I both left, what we did do was get Prime Minister Maliki to agree to a number of programs that the Iraqis would fund for the sons of Iraq as those who who were reconciled. And these included job plans, opportunity to serve in the security forces, education, skills, training, and so forth. Uh, But it would have been wonderful if we could have had him pay them from the outset, no question. General, U.S.
1: forces were withdrawn by the end of 2011, and there was no deal made with the Iraqis. Let's not go into the detail of relitigate why that happened, but it didn't happen. And U.S. forces were out of there by the end of that year.
2: We actually, I should point out, we still had a fairly robust training effort there under a three-star general, but you are right that all of our combat forces were withdrawn at the end of 2011, something I opposed. Ambassador Crocker says you don't end
1: a war by pulling your forces off the battlefield. You simply cede the space to your enemies. In this case, Islamic State in the West and Iran in the East. And bearing in mind here, we're talking about consequences for U.S. policy. Looking back on it, that seems like a very serious error.
2: Well, it was. Uh, and I was among those who felt that we should have kept at least five to 10,000 troops on the ground. There was a problem. We couldn't get a parliamentary approved status of forces agreement. The prime minister was willing to take them. But without that, uh, the White House wasn't willing to do it. Now, the irony is, of course, that when that same White House had to go back in to help Iraq defeat the Islamic State... When it left the White House, when the Obama administration left, there were about 5,500 troops back on the ground without a parliamentary approved status of forces agreement. Now, in terms of um,
1: President Obama, who was president by this stage, do you think there was a sense in which as the uh, forces of ISIS or ISIL or Daesh, who became Islamic State... He didn't really take them very seriously to start with, did he? Because he was seeing things through a prism of al-Qaeda, of 9-11. He said some quite dismissive things. Only a period of months before he was actually forced to reintervene.
2: Well, again, the Islamic State at the end of 2011 was still destroyed. We destroyed uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq, the Islamic State, during the surge, and actually kept it very much down. But then it regenerated, didn't it? It regenerated after Prime Minister Maliki took the actions that he did, and his forces focused on Sunni demonstrators rather than on continuing to keep the Islamic State down. That allowed the Islamic State to reconstitute, to go into Syria, to add enormously to its power, and of course, to sweep back into the north and the West, taking Anbar province and Mosul and establishing the caliphate in northern Iraq and northeastern Syria. Do you think Obama was taking them seriously enough at the time? Well, it depends when. I mean, when he called them a junior varsity, clearly that was
1: not the case. Exactly. That's what I was thinking of. And also, the when they did sweep back into Iraq, the Iraqi forces, which had been trained and equipped at vast expense by the United States, collapsed. They broke and ran and abandoned millions of dollars' worth of equipment. That must have been enormously disappointing for people like you who'd seen that training going on. Uh, Very
2: much so, and who had originally established it, of course, as a three-star. So what went wrong, do you think? Why did they break? This is not unexpected. Keep in mind that I was the director of the CIA by that time. Uh, in fact, I was the first person to see Maliki right after he took those terrible sectarian actions. I happened to be in Baghdad in mid-December to see our elements that were on the ground in Baghdad before the Christmas break, uh, and found a capital that was in chaos because of what it was that he had done. What but did you we tell understood, What had happened is that, you'll recall I said that we had to replace all of the highly sectarian leaders- particularly in the police elements and some of the select army divisions, we literally forced Maliki to fire, uh, the three star, the two stars, most of the brigade commanders, all of them in the police units, uh, the the actual divisions and brigades, not regular police, And then a number in the military before we would reconstitute those units. So we had huge leverage when I was commanding the surge. Tragically, some years later, he brought back a number of these individuals, put them back in command because they were loyal to him rather than, if you will, to the Ministry of Defense or to the state. Uh, and they turned out to be as cowardly, corrupt, and inept as I believe they were. We knew, we tracked several of them individually that I knew particularly, and again had insisted be fired and retired earlier. And then he also disrupted the chain of command. He would give orders directly to individuals by cell phone, bypassing the chain of command, so that what should have been a coordinated activity, particularly in the North, where they had more than enough forces to defend Mosul, uh, they undermined the ability of his subordinate commanders to conduct the kind of coordinated uh, defensive and then counteroffensive operations that they should have conducted
1: certainly very chaotic. Of course, one of the consequences of Iraq was that the consequences of the Iraq invasion was not simply that within the country itself, it radiated out through the region. If we talk about Syria, can we speak about one particular incident? It was after those poison gas attacks in the outskirts of Damascus in 2013, when it looked very much as if Obama was going to bomb or have some kind of military operation against the regime of President Bashar al-Assad because he himself had said there's a red line and it's the use of chemical weapons and then they were used. And then he decided not to go ahead with it.
2: Thank you. And today I want to make it absolutely clear to Assad and those under his command, the world is watching. The use of chemical weapons is and would be totally unacceptable. And if you make the tragic mistake of using these weapons, there will be consequences and you will be held accountable.
1: How serious a mistake do you think that was? Do you think it might have changed things in terms of the way that the Americans were then able to impose their will or
2: not in the subsequent years? Uh, It may have. Again, I think it was a serious mistake. Um, If you are the president of the United States and you establish a red line publicly, you need to follow through on it when it is crossed. Uh, And it's not just because of what it had to do with Syria. Of course, this is disconnected from Iraq. This really doesn't have a great deal to do with what was going on in Iraq at the time. It had to do with the Syrian civil war that was going on at that time, but it had reverberations out in the Asia Pacific region. I remember traveling in Southeast Asia, meeting with a prime minister of a very important Western partner, who said, you know, General, what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay there. There are repercussions out here. And if you are trying to keep deterrence solid, deterrence is a function of two elements. It's a potential adversary's assessment of your capabilities on the one hand and your willingness to employ them on the other. And obviously, if a red line is crossed and no action is taken, it undermines the perception of your willingness to take action. So did, frankly, the withdrawal of our forces from Afghanistan when we really didn't have to, uh, and the way that the Afghan withdrawal was conducted. So again, we have to always keep that in mind. This is where the support for Ukraine in the face of the brutal, unprovoked Russian invasion has been actually very important because it has shown the United States leading the world once again and doing what I believe is very much in our interest, not to mention the interest of the Western world. Before before we talk about Ukraine, let me ask you one more thing about that incident in
1: 2013. It seems to me and to many others that one of the, the reasons why there was hesitancy politically, not just in Washington, but in London and other potential partners in the enterprise in terms of taking action against Assad was because of the Iraq effect, because of the impact of the invasion in 2003 that was seen as by that stage. 10 years on, is a terrible mistake with awful consequences. And politicians were reluctant to make the same mistakes again. So would you say that is an example of the reverberations of the invasion carrying on the fact that America, when it came to it, blinked in 2013 in Damascus?
2: Uh, certainly possible. Um, I think there's no question that Iraq has been a cautionary tale uh, for policymakers who are contemplating the use of force. Uh, By the way, also, the Libya experience for the Obama presidency was another contributing factor. So you have Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, uh, they're all problematic. And again, before you contemplate using force, those are haunting you to a degree. So uh, yeah, I think that that is perhaps a contributing factor, and certainly you can make that case. Do you think that President Putin, who intervened himself
1: in Syria in 2015, uh, with, from his point of view, some success. He helped preserve the regime and he helped, uh, he made Russia at least feel as if it could be a world power again. Do you think that he took the lesson from 2013 and from the reluctance to get too involved after what happened in Iraq do you think that he, he somehow transposed that into his decisions as far as Ukraine was concerned, taking away the message that the West, led by the U.S., really didn't have the guts or the stomach for it anymore?
2: Well, I'd say those plus, in that case, in the case of Ukraine, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the way that was conducted as well. So if you put all that together, certainly uh, there's a, a likelihood uh, that that is among the factors that influenced Putin to invade Ukraine. I mean, there are many others that I would contend are more important, such as his grievances about Ukraine's very right to exist uh, in a variety of revanchist, revisionist histories that he clings to.
1: No, that's, that's certainly the case. But... Let's then talk about Ukraine, about the last year of American-led support for the Ukrainian government. First of all, does this signal a new era of American foreign policy in a time when much more clearly defined than 20 years ago in the invasion of Iraq, when the world is once again multipolar, when there are some serious strategic threats? to the United States and to its Western allies, and while Russia on its own may well be its potential alliance, with its alliance, its actual alliance with China certainly might be.
2: Well, I just see this, again, as actually about as right and wrong, right versus wrong as is possible, frankly. Uh, you have, again, an unprovoked invasion of a country violating its territorial sovereignty doing so in a particularly brutal manner, committing war crime after war crime, uh, bombing civilian infrastructure, innocent civilians, uh, all of this, and on the borders of NATO, and in recognition, I think, correctly, that Russia has to be stopped in Ukraine, uh, that he will not stop if he succeeds. Uh, And in this case, I think the U.S. administration and the U.S. Congress together Uh, have very impressively supported Ukraine. There's a couple of decisions I'd like to have seen made a bit more rapidly at times, the tanks, uh, some others, longer-range precision munitions. But again, $32 billion worth of arms, ammunition, and other military material, just from the United States, nearly a like amount of that in economic and humanitarian assistance. Uh, The EU, NATO countries, all uh, very substantial contributions as well. This is a very, very significant response by a U.S.-led West, Uh, and I think it does show that the U.S. is still the indispensable nation, and the U.S. can indeed lead the rest of the world and do so, again, very impressively.
1: General, you would be very conscious of the fact that there are many countries, particularly in what's known as the Global South, who wouldn't wouldn't agree with that, who've stayed quite neutral, Uh, best on the whole business of opposing Russia in Ukraine. And there are many voices, too, that will say, hang on a minute, an invasion, dubious international law, bombing civilian infrastructure, killing civilians without real justification in terms of self-defense. Hang on, that sounds a bit like America invading Iraq. You know that that point of view, as is well, is often discussed around the
2: world. Here, I, hear, I travel the world. This is what I do. I, know, uh, I, hear, I hear it, it I was just in India for the Trilateral Commission. Many of the countries of the, quote, South were included there. So I've certainly heard that. And certainly, some case can be made for that, but I would in no way equate how we carry out combat operations with the blatant war crimes uh, of Russia. We made mistakes. But when we made mistakes, we acknowledged them, we took corrective action, we took punitive action, and we did what we could to prevent that you, from happening. We killed many US, civilians. A very, different, a very, very different military culture in the U.S. military from that which pervades that in Russia. I absolutely agree, and I don't doubt that for one moment. But in terms
1: of the impact on Iraqis, many thousands of civilians killed, awful scenes inside prisons. The Abu Ghraib photos are something that will live in infamy. Yeah, but
2: we fixed that. And I, I invited the Red Cross into every single detention facility that we had, including the special operations facility uh, when I was the commander in Iraq. So, again, there's a huge difference between how we you conduct fixed the, operations you, and how Russia conducts operations. Now, again, you fixed it, it but it, it happened. about the, the engagement but it, it happened, before. General, didn't it? Abu Ghraib obviously, obviously happened. It's well documented. Yeah, and we are those... Images are indelible, and they haunt us and create problems for us without question. But again, I I just totally reject a comparison of how we operate, trying to adhere to the Geneva Convention and the rules of uh, law of land warfare and how the Russians are conducting themselves in Ukraine, which appears to be a culture of actually committing war crimes rather than trying to avoid them we're almost out of time now. So let me
1: just ask you a couple of things. First of all, after so much backing from the US and its allies, there's actually stalemate on the battlefield, more or less. The Russian army has not collapsed, despite its many, many problems and faults and errors that it's made. Yes, many casualties have been inflicted, but that's probably
2: on both sides. So where's this war going? Well, first of all, I would just point out that Russia has failed. Uh, It failed to achieve its overall objective of taking Kyiv, toppling the government, and replacing President Zelensky with a pro-Russian figure. In fact, they withdrew. They lost the Battle of Kyiv. They lost the Battle of Arkiv. They lost the battles of Sumy, Chernihiv, and Kherson. And they have been fought to a standstill since then at enormous cost, not even able to take these little communities of of Bakhmut and, and so forth. And again, the colossal losses they have sustained vastly more uh, than the Ukrainians who are fighting with the advantage, by and large, of the defense. And I would be careful not to make premature assessments uh, about a stalemate until we see what the Ukrainians do this spring when they conduct an offensive that I believe will achieve combined arms effects for the first time in this war by either side. In other words, tanks supported by infantry that are keeping the anti-tank guided missiles off them, artillery keeping the enemy suppressed, engineers reducing obstacles and explosives, air defense protecting the tanks, electronic warfare jamming the Russians' communications, and logistics right up behind the lead elements with additional ammunition, food, fuel, water, and medical supplies, and follow-on forces ready to exploit the success of the lead elements in a way that was not present in the offensive, the impressive offensive in the East last fall in Kharkiv. That, I think, bears very careful watching, because that could be a potential breakthrough for the Ukrainians. It could lead to the crumbling or even collapse of Russian forces, at least in local areas and perhaps more broadly. Now, if the war does go on beyond this year, if that isn't decisive, there's the
1: political cycle to think about. If Joe Biden wins a second term then I think it's clear that US support for Ukraine will continue. But very different noises have been coming out of the Republican side, haven't they? From lightly front runners to Santos or Trump, quite skeptical about just why the US is spending so much in terms of money to back up and political risk and economic damage to to back up the Ukrainians in the way that they are.
2: Well, first of all, I'll just point out that, of course, Joe Biden's term is not up regardless of the outcome of the election next fall uh, until early uh, 2025. So we're talking well over two years from now, at the least. And that support will be solid during that time, uh, including uh, in the Congress, where the biggest supporter of Ukraine in the Congress is the Republican leader, minority leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell. And although there certainly are some very loud voices in the House of Representatives, questioning this support, I think you'll still see bipartisan support uh, in the House as well. But a lot depends on this Ukrainian offensive. Uh, nothing succeeds like success, I can tell you, having commanded the surge, where there were legions of skeptics in, in the Congress, including those one who actually won the White House in that second year of the surge and went on to be our commander-in-chief. But virtually all the other Candidates, except for Senator McCain. And once it succeeded, then frankly, there was enormous support. And it it gave us an extended mandate in Iraq, including when President Obama took control in the White House. General, just looking ahead a bit, I've got just one more
1: question to ask you. And that's about China and the United States. China, a rising power. Plenty of people argue the US might already be a declining power. Does that make some kind of war inevitable between the two of them?
2: No. And I love Graham Ellison, a great professor at Harvard, who wrote the who makes book, that argument. Destined yes. A War Without a Question Mark. You know, in other words, uh, the Thucydides trap, you know, you liking to Sparta was the established power, Athens a rising power, US, China, and as Thucydides wrote, inevitably- Not you know, a good I, analogy, then? Not a good analogy. Well- I don't think so. Uh, I hope not. First of all, this is a nuclear age. And second, uh, we get a vote, particularly when it comes to deterrence. The key in this relationship is to ensure uh, that there is not miscommunication, to ensure there's no misperception about our capabilities and our willingness to employ them, while trying to establish as productive and mutually beneficial a relationship as is possible, noting that the relationship right now is about as fraught as it has been in the last 45 years or so. It'll be
1: generally be even more fraught if the Chinese make any moves against Taiwan. President Xi has said that that island, that rebel province should be brought back
2: into the fold of Beijing. Well, again, this is why deterrence is so important. Uh, again, there has to be very uh, clear assessment of what we have is necessary and our willingness to employ it. And that has to be sufficient to avoid what right now is described as severe competition turning into actual conflict. It sounds like a new Cold War to me, at the very least. I don't think so. I think that analogy is very flawed. Uh, there are certainly elements of it that are present, but we are each other's one of each other's top three trading partners. Uh, this is a completely different situation from what I obtained when there, we were in the Cold War between the US-led West and the USSR and the Warsaw Pact, where we have very little economic and, and trade with each other. This is a completely different situation. We cannot decouple from each other, actually. There's selective decoupling taking place, but we cannot decouple.
1: Wasn't that the theory behind uh, doing business with Putin's Russia by building gas pipelines, that somehow it would make war just outmoded for an economic reasons, because Russia would be dependent on the money it earned from Europe. It didn't quite work out that
2: way, did it? I'm not arguing that the economic element is the deterrent element here. Uh, I, I should be very clear. Again, it's about our military capabilities and the perceptions of our willingness to employ them. Okay. General, I think we're there now. I think
1: we've got it. And thank you so much for giving us on Intelligence Squared. You bet. You're
2: a great contrarian.
1: <laughs> Got to ask questions. Uh, and uh, you've been listening to uh, Iraq, The Legacy of War from Intelligence Square. Thanks very much for joining us.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of Legacy of War, a mini-series by Intelligence Squared. This was the last episode of the series, but we'll be back soon with more programs looking into the significant events that have shaped our modern world. This series was produced by Farage Asat and Catherine Hughes with artwork and editing from Catherine Hughes.